0: Sat back over the last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case. Can I tell you a
1: secret? That you been killing? What happened? was kids, our kids. My, my whole brain's a bunch of missing pieces. That's when it all started. Panic.
0: Hello and welcome to Still Watching True Detective. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson.
2: And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson.
0: We are a little over halfway through this season of Still Watching, where every week we break down the latest episodes, including theories and twists. This week we will be discussing and only spoiling up to Season 3, Episode 5, if you have ghosts written and directed by nick pizzolato uh as we did last week there will be maybe a little section at the end where we might talk about some stuff that is not a spoiler per se but is perhaps considered something you might want to have a warning on before you wade into uh, but for the most part we're just going to keep it to what we saw on the screen as well as like what all the little reddit detectives are are working away with on online um and
2: we can't the- spoil it further because hbo did not give us more episodes
0: It's true. We haven't seen anything (laughs) past episode five. Um, uh, So
2: congratulations, listeners. You are now where we are. Like, we are all in the same place. We
0: are all on the same page with Stephen Dorff's recent hairline. Um, Something I want to say is you're hearing, you're getting this episode a little early because uh, HBO dropped the episode early on Friday instead of Sunday to sort of get, get out of the way of the Super Bowl. So it's available online. As of Friday. So if you, if you have this in your, in your feed and you haven't, uh, watched the episode yet, you know, this is, this is your warning. If, are you caught up to episode five? It dropped early. Go watch it before we start talking about it. All of that. Uh, also in this episode, we've got an interview with great. Scoot McNary, or as Richard likes to call him.
2: McNary, Queen of Scoots. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, uh, we will be talking to Scoot about his performance as Tom Purcell, uh, in this episode, which is actually something I really, really loved a lot about this episode. Uh, before, before we get into all of that, we've got a few emails from you guys that we wanted to dive into. Uh, you can always email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com or you can tweet at us. Uh, Richard's is at Rylaws. I met wrote this. Someone this week sent us a photo from, a Fayetteville, Arkansas thrift store where they have a bunch of the jackets that were used on True Detective and maybe other things are on sale in like a rack that just says like as seen on True Detective. So if you want Stephen Dorff's like leather uh, and tweed combo jacket or something like that, I think you might be able to find it at the Fayetteville thrift store. So go take a look. Um, our Um Our first email comes from Christian... And Christian just wanted to follow up on that like that long ramble I had about the Tibetan Book of the Dead which once again I sort of apologize for going off so long on that but um he said Christian said if if this is a subject you find interesting I highly recommend Gaspar Noé's Enter the Void it's a surprisingly faithful narrative adaptation of that book and represents a distinctly Buddhist cosmology as opposed to Jacob's ladder um and then Christian says he'll see us all for Game of Thrones in April. So, um, you know, thank you, Christian. I've seen other Gaspar Noé movies, but I've never seen Enter the Void. Have you seen that one, Richard? Uh,
2: no, I have not.
0: Okay. So, um, uh, you know, Noé is sort of like a, uh, famously, um, he's a lot. His films are a lot. So if you're in the mood for a lot, you know, go, go check out that Enter the Void. um, we also got either a tweet or an email. I don't have it in front of me, but someone mentioned to me that they read the things they carried because we mentioned it, the Tim O'Brien book, because we mentioned it on the show. Uh That makes me really happy because, Oh no, it's this email from Marcos. Marcos says, uh, I just want to comment on the bomb device that Brett Woodard sets up to explode. If someone opens his front door, the one that says front toward enemy. I recognize this as a claymore mine, a device used during the Vietnam war. I'm not a vet, but I know this from watching movies and reading books about the war. This makes sense because Brett, um, uh, is a vet. Yeah. So just the kind of mine it is, the Claymore mine. And then Marco says, uh, thanks for recommending Tim O'Brien's books. I just read the thing they carried and really enjoyed it. So yeah, if you're really interested in further exploring, there's a line that Wayne has in this episode, episode five, where, um, he says Woodard made him carry his water. Um, you know, that just made me think of the things they carried, which Mm -hmm. is just, you know, about so much. Uh, so that's a great book. And then the last one comes from Jennifer from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And Jennifer writes, though I'm not from Louisiana, my husband is and spent most of his life fishing in South Louisiana. Um, like most people in this region, sportsman paradise. Anyway, when the shoe pick lane sign came into frame on the first episode of season three, my husband asked me to pause it and then told me that shoe pick, shoe pick, uh, or shoe peak, uh, is a junk fish primitive bony with a flavorless meat like a garfish that can be caught on almost any bait because they'll eat anything. Wonder if that means anything here. Initially, I thought the street name served to describe their residence, but I did a little more research and discovered that when paired with the Hoyt theory, which, um, is something we talked about last week in sort of the spoiler section. Maybe shoe pick lane is more significant referred to as a bowfin outside of Louisiana. Shoe picks are commonly harvested harvested for their row to produce Cajun caviar Uh and undesired fish harvested for value eggs. Okay. I see you, Nick Pizzolatto, you clever little South Louisiana boy. <laughs> so there we go. So those are some great emails we got. We will talk a little bit more about the Hoyt theory <clears throat> down in that spoiler section that I mentioned. Um, uh and and as we did last week we will mark that off with a great uh, little new chicken noise alert that Dave put together for us if you haven't heard it it is something truly extraordinary i think it's better even than the hog noises from uh you know sharp objects so stay for the chicken noises even if you don't stay for what comes after the chicken noises should um,
2: we also address um a somewhat glaring error we made last week uh, oh, yes. regarding a mis a mishearing of something
0: Yes, uh, you might have remembered a prolonged bit we did last week around, uh, the, the phrase grouper street kids, <laughs> uh, which both really reveals itself in this episode and anyone with wa- uh, watching with closed captioning that, um, it was group of street kids in our defense, I guess. Uh, this was during Mahershala's, you know, old man scene. Uh, and there were a few times where I had to like rewind scenes this week to rewatch them to hear sort of what he was mumbling about. So, um, in my slight defense, but, but the group of street kids bit, I don't know if it's dead. Just because it was wrong doesn't mean I don't want to hear Richard still continue to do a Colory bad cockney sort of hybrid group of street kid bit. So we'll, we'll see. I mean,
2: the fact that we misheard it on the show doesn't mean that I wasn't in that band.
0: Oh, right, right, right. Of course.
2: Right. Of course. <laughs> it's just, it's just not a coincidence anymore.
0: <laughs> if you, do you, um, do you have any thoughts about the episode title, if you have ghosts, other than, like, sort of the uh, obvious one, which is that, you know, Wayne is continually haunted?
2: Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, some some of the titles, the episode titles kind of reveal their, their meaning as the episode goes. This one, I feel like, is a bit more opaque. Um, uh-huh. But it's certainly a... I mean, this whole season is kind of building toward this very haunted thing, and and I think uh, particularly the closing scene of this episode, like this is a much more um, emotional uh, season than we've seen in the past. I mean, there's definitely been emotion in True Detective before this, but like this feels very much about a friendship more than it does about a murder. And yes. So the yeah. ha- that that kind of, so they're haunted by the murder, obviously, but there's also this kind of just like lost bond I think that uh that sort of really gets spoken about pretty eloquently in this episode
0: yeah there's a there's a phrase um I, I guess there's a phrase I didn't know it before this episode but there's a phrase that uh, is if you if you have ghosts you have everything um which means sort of like if you if you know where you came from you know your roots like if you have a history you have something and I think that that parlay is most directly to um like Wayne, Wayne is tortured in his own way. Old, like this older Wayne that we meet in 2015, he's tortured in his own way because he has all these ghosts. But the ghosts, at least, mean like a life lived. And we meet older Roland in this episode where he talks about like he doesn't, he never got married, never has kids, he lives out alone, he has no old friends, like he has dogs. Um, and so like you know, uh, yeah, Wayne is ghosts and that's like awful and torturous, but at least it's something. Whereas like maybe Roland has nothing. At this point, uh, which is a huge reversal for them. So, um, all right. We will get to that. We will get to Old Mandorf, whom I love. So, uh, we'll get to all of that, but we're going to start as we did last week, uh, in chronological order. We're going to do 1980, 1990, 2015. Starting in 1980, we pick up, you know, directly where we left off with the explosion and the shootout at the Woodard compound. You know, FBI guys get hit, uh, local, you know, rednecks get hit. Steven Dorff gets hit in the shin. We find out where Roland got his limp. And then Wayne is sort of made to what are basically makes Wayne kill him. Um, In, in a scene that both, you know, great performance from Michael Gray has, as usual. And then also just great stuff from Mahershala. uh What did you think of this, of the scene?
2: Richard? Yeah. I mean, I feel like every, we talked about it last week that every, every season of this show so far has had a big action sequence. And here's this. And I think that like, you know, despite it being a big action sequence, actually it's pretty it's pretty restrained um and i think that the the chaos of it is used well for the broader narrative of the show you know like i think that the the the, the kind of famous long take nighttime shootout thing in the first season of true detective kind of ultimately felt um, like kind of beside the point like it wasn't a, a really like inherent part of the of the mystery in a way but this you know is very much tangled up in it because this is how woodard event offent- is essentially gets blamed and and is kind of held to be guilty for at least 10 years so i like that it, it was both exciting and gory and scary but also um, meant something
0: absolutely and and just this this exchange between them i, I really love that Uh, Woodard calls him Sarge and Sergeant instead of detective, you know, he calls him by like his, his war title basically. Um, and, and just this concept of like Wayne being so mad, like so frustrated that Woodard's going to make him kill him when he doesn't like want to kill him, you know, is just, um, like a really, really interesting dynamic. Um, this is where I want to mention, I can't remember if I mentioned on the podcast, but Richard and I definitely talked about it briefly off air. Um, there, the interesting connection between this scene and Jeremy Saligny's, um, film, Hold the Dark, which, uh, I saw at Fantastic Fest last year. Jeremy Salnier directed the first two episodes of the season. He was sort of like left the production some, like possibly somewhat acrimoniously. We don't know quite what happened, but he was supposed to direct the whole season. He only directed two episodes. I don't know the timeline here exactly of when Hold the Dark was made versus when the season was made, but Hold the Dark has an est- Donishingly similar, uh, shootout with a Native American man, um, hold up in his, like, taking a stand with, like, a Gatling gun, basically, in the top of a, like, barn surrounded by cops, um, and then you've got, like, a main cop who's, like, sympathetic to this man's, um, sort of plight and goes around the back and sneaks in the back and then has to, like, like, it's, Almost exactly the same. And Um, so,
2: you you saying Maine Cup made me wish that there was a True Detective season set in Maine. (laughs) Can't get there from here.
0: I was Stephen, so hoping that Stephen would come King. with the main accent.
2: <laughs> Stephen King does season four of True Detective. Please.
0: <laughs> um, I would love that. Uh, but the, uh, yeah. So it's, I, I'm, I'm like, I, I, I probably am going to write a little bit about this for our website. I'll, I'll have some like, uh, illustrative, uh, gifts. If you know me, you know that that's something I like to do. So you can look for that on vanityfair.com. But, um, I'm fascinated to know, uh, I'm trying to see if anyone will talk to me about it, but I'm fascinated to know sort of the timeline on this and if, um, you know it it, like which came first how how possibly these two things could exist that are so similar with a similar artist but that artist wasn't there for this part of it you know Mm -hmm. uh so this this episode was directed by nick pizzolato so you know i don't know anyway so um we then go to Wayne in the hospital. He's worried about Roland, but there's nothing he can do. Amelia shows up as she always does when something happens. And she's like, saw it on the news. Tell me what happened. Tell me, tell me, tell me things. Tell mm-hmm. me about, about it. But also like under the guy, like under the guise of wanting to help him. And like, as is often the case with Amelia, though this seemed to be initiated by Wayne, uh, he's like, what do you smell like? She's like, Ivory soap and chalk. He's like, let's go fuck. And they go have sex. And that, I mean, it's a way that it's a very believable to me thing because, um, I, believe that this is a way that certain people handle like you know trauma um, yeah, um and sandra yeah.
2: bullock has a great monologue about that in the classic action film demolition man in which she prop propositioned sylvester stallone to have sex because she's like that's how people deal with um with stress Um, uh, <laughs> but i think it's also this is the first time in 1980 that they've slept together is that right or, yes um, this, yeah, so it's not only that but it's establishing something we've seen in the 1990 plotline uh, previous to this episode where they, this couple deals with conflict, um, through the language of, you know, sexual intimacy, um, whether it's conflict between the two of them or if it's, you know, something from the broader world, like they, they're, they're, they sort of more, most like potent language that they speak. Their most potent love language is, yeah. is, is sex. And, and I think that that, um, you know, I think that, that sort of furthers an already sort of interesting dynamic
0: is, is, uh, is fighting and sex, conflict and, yeah. and yes, sex right. as a resolution. Um, and so then the last thing we see in the eighties, uh, I believe is, uh, you know, it's connected to the nineties and the 2015s, but we see them processing the evidence at the Woodard home. There's a burnt sweatshirt found, uh, in, you know, in like a incinerator thing. There's Will's backpack under the floorboards and we meet someone named Harris James uh who when an investigator on the scene pulls out the backpack, uh says Harris got something in here and Harris is like, Oh, that looks like the backpack of that missing boy from all points. So, um you know, we find out later that you know, we're trying to keep this clean chronologically but this it you know it's hard to not relate this to other things we find out later that harris james this guy on the scene here uh died in 1990 when the case was reopened um or went missing at least we find out that um you know in the 1990 plot wayne figures out that the backpack at least feels like it was planted because it's pristine condition but under this like the deck of a house that's been blown up. So it should have been like damaged. And so it took them three days to process the scene. And so Wayne's theory is that anyone could have planted evidence there to incriminate Woodard. But, you know, if, if Woodard's dead and there's evidence on his property connecting him to Will and Julie, um then, you know, as far as the 1980s cops are concerned or the, or the district district, District Attorney, this is a case closed, right? Yeah, and they and don't. He's,
2: and, and he's a reclusive person. He's a nati- right. he's a native person, so he's got yeah. these kind of stigmas against him, and it just all gets so easily pushed into that narrative,
0: right? And as they mentioned in this episode, because he's dead, because Woodard's dead, uh, there was no trial, so there's no like th- no probing deeper. There's no. no defense probing deeply into this. It's just like, oh, found the stuff. He's dead. He's estranged from his family. Case closed. You know, um, which is, you know, understandable why they're digging back into the case now in the 1990s, which is what we're going to go to. Someone mentioned this, um, I forget where, maybe on Reddit, maybe in another chat that I was following, but they were like, okay, if, if they reopen the case in 1990 and there's even like a whiff that something went wrong in 1980, why would they ever put the same investigators on the case? And right. That's a really good point. That's a fair point. You know, obviously it's for the narrative, but, you know, uh, procedure wise, Wayne and Roland probably would not be back on this case that, you know, was potentially mishandled in the 1980s, even if they're trying to exonerate their own investigation in the 1980s, that's something another, you know, IA would do or something like that. So, um. All right, so we get the the Julie Purcell board. Boor- oh, um, before we move oh, yeah. on, yeah, uh, we're assuming that's the end of
2: nineteen eighty, right?
0: Uh, I think there's something else that they allude to. Maybe I'll my memory will be jogged later in this episode. Uh, but i th- I think we'll see a little bit more.
2: Oh, okay, um, okay,
0: but not much more. Yeah, but but that's very near the end of it, I think. Um, all right, so we've got nineteen ninety, and, and certainly, like, if the case comes all together. We'll probably see some flashbacks to like what actually happened to Julie and Will, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, alright. So 1990, Julie Purcell sort of investigation board have, have a heyday. Have fun, fun, like freeze framing that. Um, but you know, we, we get the 1990 team on the case. Roland is very insistent that, like, there not be an APB out, you know, just to protect Julie from anyone who might want to go after them. Uh, he also doesn't want to, like, he doesn't want to put this in front of Tom, because he doesn't want to upset Tom, and this goes to, like, Roland's personal connection with Tom. Another reason why Roland should not be on this case, but, like, his personal relationship that he has with Tom. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, despite Roland's intentions, Tom blunders into the room anyway and is like, is that my daughter in there? Basically, (laughs) um, except way better like Scoot does is that my daughter in there but like really well I think Um so what did you think of this
2: uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing with this show or, or really anything where, you know, an actor of, um, McNary, Queen of Scoots' stature, uh, you know, who, who's, you know, he's not hugely famous, but he's kind of beloved by people who pay attention to this stuff. He gets cast on the show and you're like, I don't think he's just going to be the guy who's like, where are my kids? You know, like there's yeah. going to be more and here's more. And, and then at the end of the episode, there's even more. So, so this is kind of like the the confirmation that like his aspect of the story, um, is, it is by no means concluded and, and is kind sort of ever evolving um, along with everything else. So um, I like that because I think he's a great actor.
0: This is a perfect time to go to our interview with Scoot McNary. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Okay, so we're talking about episode five. You have basically three scenes of extreme grief in this episode you know finding out that Julie might still be alive holding the press conference and then listening to this recording uh towards the end of the episode i'm wondering specifically about that recording scene did you have the audio of what was going to play or did you have to react to i don't know just a a tape recorder a blank tape recorder in front of you
1: you know it's so funny that you asked that um it was uh I think it was Nick's Nick's assistant or one of the producers assistants that laid down a tape. But you know, they played it on the speaker in the room, but you could really hear the room tone noise on the speaker. So, you know, the room is incredibly quiet. It was a tiny little box. Uh yeah, I did have somebody uh, speaking to me to to react to it or a recording, I guess, to uh reactive but every time it stopped like this ambient noise would stop it would stop as well I and mean, then it would <laughs> just get dead quiet and you know, having you just said that to me and just brought back that memory of.
0: So often, actors talk about the energy you know they get from their various scene partners. You know, and obviously, you're not the the first actor to have to react to something more passive or or static. But you know, what what tricks do you have sort of in your tool belt when it comes to doing something like that, where you're just listening to something and having to go through uh, a gamut of emotion?
1: I will say, uh, I I have kids um, and. You know, I sort of put myself in sort of awful position of putting myself in Tom Percell's uh, position as to what would it be like if I if this happened to my kid. And it was a as much as I enjoyed doing the project and working on you know such a great script and all mixed writing, it was a I won't lie to you, it was a really awful place for me to sit in for. Five months, and I was very, very, very relieved when it was over. And shit, my heart goes out to anyone and everyone that's ever had to deal with any sort of circumstance like this. It's, um, I can see how it's something that we could just never, really ever recover from. And-
0: Given how sort of grim and harrowing these kinds of stories can be, what do you think um, feeds our... Uh, national or maybe even international obsession with true crime with, with our compulsion to live in these worlds of, of, of tragedy, of murder, of mystery.
1: I think it's our reality. Uh, I think we're fast. I think we're fascinated by it because, because it's true. It really does happen. Um, you know, you look at these sort of neighborhoods or societies that are sort of these utopias and it's almost, in a way, scary to live in those because they're so far removed from the world that we actually live in. And I think that sort of what sparks our fascination with it is that we know these things happen, but to actually watch them happen and see the details of ha- how they happened and, you know, watching of them, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, we personally probably watched about 550 episodes of the Files um, I don't know what keeps... I don't know what keeps bringing me back to them, but I can watch them back to back to back to back.
0: I don't know if you know this, but in the betting markets right now, Tom Purcell is currently... Like, odds are on Tom to be the killer this season. Did you ever get a note from any of your directors, Daniel, Nick, Jeremy, that you were acting too squirrely, too guilty that you needed to, to dial it back? Or do you just play the truth of Tom uh, as you see it
1: I really didn't want to know if, if, if Tom didn't or didn't do it if, if I didn't know then then I would assume that the audience wouldn't know and I think obviously that's a very important piece to the to, to Nick's writing and the script and, and the performance
0: so you're saying like from the scripts you got it was ambiguous to you, uh, and then you would prefer not to know the concrete answer until you were done or
1: from the tips I got, I felt both. I felt like, did he do this? But no, he couldn't have done this. You know what I mean? But yeah, but he might, but he he could have. And so I sort of gotten just enough information for me to sort of move forward on a day-to-day basis. But I didn't want to know uh, the last episode. I did not want to know how it ended. I, I, I did. I didn't read it. I didn't want to know. Uh, I also want, didn't want to know so that I would be excited to watch the show as well, not knowing how it ended.
0: Right. Um, there's this one scene you have in the car with Stephen's character Roland, where. Tom uses a racial epithet when talking about Wayne, uh, Marshall Ali's character, uh, and then expresses this genuine, just really deeply felt emotional remorse for using that terrible word. And I'm wondering, it was a surprising, I think, reaction. While I was watching, I was surprised that Tom had s- such a strong reaction. What was it like for you to film that scene?
1: It's actually hard for me to talk about that. See, uh, I think every character, I don't know how all actors work, but every character. I feel like I play as it. 50% me and 50% this character, and I try not to lose the sense of self in playing character or project self into character. That yeah. whole, and what this country's going through right now is something that's very personal to me and very frustrating to me. And, and I felt like we had come so far, you know, since those times that I think that soon becomes a cause so genuine because it's so frustrating that we're back to that place now. And um, I have so much sort of anger and animosity towards, towards race. I'll just say it towards racist people. Everybody feels the same thing. Everybody gets jealous. Everybody gets hurt. Everybody has the same emotions. And there's a part of that that's, With with giving Tom humanity and having Tom grow as a human being, to realize that those thoughts and ideas are are irrelevant when it comes down to losing a child. As if someone who is white that loses a child is worse than somebody who is black, or trying to separate the two. And I felt like at that moment, it's more of Tom sort of learning that like, it, it, when you lose a kid, nothing else matters. And everybody else ex- experiences this pain, whether you're you know, black, white, you know, I- any color, or race, or religion. It's, you know, we're, all, we're all human beings.
0: I think you really see that in the um, watching you play Tom 10 years apart and watching you play Tom so out of control in the 80s, and then so, like, clinging to these structures of control, like religion or routine in the 90s, and then maybe seeing that all unravel again as he's, like, th- you know, thrown back into this question of Julie and all of that. Um You're the first of the actors on the show that have played in multiple timelines that I've talked to, so I'm wondering, you know, do you get to shoot that in order... And how do you, you know, modulate that performance of 80s Tom and 90s Tom?
1: This guy has really, really, really worked hard over the course of 10 years to overcome this tragedy and this loss. He's going to sort of pick himself up, back up and, and rebuild himself and and, and use and use his religion to do so. Um, I don't think it's been revealed yet, but there's there's other demons within even him. Taking on religion that he has to deal with, um, that is coming up. That the, the detectives make a discovery that has a conflict in him even being religious. Um, I can't really elaborate on that, but but um, it's just a and it's mixed writing. It makes and sort of prevail and overcome. But within the overcoming, he's still dealing with a demon that you didn't not even a demon i shouldn't even say that it's not a demon it's a it's a secret that that he's dealing with that um juxtaposes his his religion
0: um and then on a um a slightly more frivolous note i'm wondering if um if you get any say at all as the actor in crafting like what Tom's look in the 80s versus Tom's look in the 90s will be. There's so much wig work in this series, and I think you got away with not having to do a wig. You just got to comb your hair back, I think. But um, do you do you get any any uh, input on that front?
1: Um, you know, it's always a collaboration. Um, you know, I, I have my thoughts and my ideas. Um, a lot of characters I play, I like to go out and find... The external part of him as a real person. And, uh, this particular character, I found this guy in Smalltown, Texas. I was getting my car washed. I watched him for a really long time in my car. I was taking pictures of him. And I sent that to Brian, the, uh, heir, And, uh, I said, I, I, I think this is the guy. I think this is what he looks like. And, he was like, I love it, I think it's great. And uh, that was it, you know, and I got there, we, my hair is naturally brown and I always sort of try to comb it out. And um, I had an idea, I had a thought, I sent him a bunch of pictures of this guy from the car wash. And, you know, I wanted him to look like a uh, stray lost puppy uh, sheepdog.
0: I love the idea that anyone like out in the world at any given moment could be having their picture taken by Scoot McNary and be the basis for a character in an upcoming project.
1: Well, I just find it, yeah, it's, uh, you know, my wife, I have photographs of random people that I've taken pictures of, like this catalog of characters that I think are interesting looking. If, you know, you see somebody like, I wonder what that guy's life is like, or I wonder what his apartment looks like, his house, or, you know, just the mystery behind the facade of somebody is fascinating to me and I'll never get to go to their apartment or their house. But the, the, the fantasizing about what it's like is, is one of my favorite parts of, of, of being an actor.
0: You're like an actor detective, kind of. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and then my, my last question for you, I guess is um, if you can talk about it, I don't know, maybe it's something we haven't seen yet. So maybe you can't talk about it, but um like, what was the the hardest, uh, you know, scene for you to film? What was the the most challenging?
1: When he, uh, it was just a total wonderment if he's going to find his daughter again, and just like, and if he's not, at the moment it was like, because if we're not, I just want to live on with my life. I can't live like this, knowing not knowing if she's dead or not dead, and. uh, that was something that was, uh, I and mean, the end is it still it still sticks with me today, and you know, and I, I I haven't seen the show yet. I'm in Mexico City, so we don't have HBO go down here that it works. But <laughs> that specific yeah. scene is is every, you know, whenever I think about my time in Arkansas, or my time on this job and this character, that's the one that just keeps popping back into my head.
0: We find out a few details like, uh, Lucy died in 88. Uh, you know, Dan, they can't find him. The last they saw him, he was in Vegas, 85, 87, dropped off the map. So, cousin Dan, still in the loose, but we know from previous episodes that they will find him at some point in 1990 before he ends up, uh, dead in a quarry. So, uh, that's, that's the timeline on that. Um, and then, you know, like, we, we get this press conference, right? Um, where Tom as uh, played by Scoot is in front of camera sort of pleading for Julie uh to come back. We also get um Attorney General Kent on this press ca- conference. And I think that's really important for the later. I'll just do all the Tom stuff really quickly, right? So like Tom does his press conference. Uh, Kent is also on, on camera talking about it. And then he gets interrupted by Alan, who's there with Woodard's kids. And this, this fills in some holes we've been hearing throughout the season where they're like, the man, his kids. We now know that the man is Brett Woodard. The kids who want to reopen the case are these two kids, uh, that we meet here. David and Josie Woodard, who want their father cleared. And um, I love this moment when uh, Wayne says to alan where was this perry mason shit in the 80s because i don't know if you ever watched perry mason i watched a lot of perry mason i watched a lot with my mom like all the time when i was very young and Perry, like this is how i thought court cases would go is that there would be like cross-examination of the perry mason's like it wasn't her it was him and pointing to like someone who's just like in the room and just going like way off procedure and 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 going rogue and so him calling what alan does here perry mason shit is really perfect uh yeah i like
2: i like it when when wayne's funny
0: yeah, for the Perry Heads out there, yeah. for, for the Mason Mason addicts. Uh, so yeah, so this is this is an interesting press conference and and Alan's sort of like stunt and all of this. What what do you think of this? Uh
2: yeah, I mean I it's nice to have stuff kind of click into place, you know, um and and you know cuz to, to have it be confirmed that this is the person we're talking about in terms of who was you know wrongly convicted and all that. Um I like the show moving along. I, I like, I like that this episode is good in terms of like churning out exposition, but in, you know, in an interesting way and, you know, moving us, setting us up nicely for the back half of the season or, or like less than a half of the season. Um, yeah. So, and I, you know, again, I like when Wayne's funny and I like, uh, uh, I, I like where the mystery is taking us.
0: And it's also important to see sort of where, um, where Alan and Kent are using their own political motivations right. uh, in this, that like, you know, Alan has his own uh, personal vendetta going on here, or his own agenda, I should say. Um, and then let's, let's hop to the end of Tom's little thread and say that the the as off the back of that press conference, they've set up a hotline. Someone calls in. Uh, it's a young woman claiming to be Julie or she never says she's Julie, but you know, um, and this is what, this is literally what she says. She says, I saw him on the television, make him leave me alone. Tell him to leave me alone. I know what he did. The man on TV acting like my father, where's my brother will. I don't know what he did with him. We left him resting. He took me and I'm never coming back. Just leave me alone. Um, and tom is listening to all this and crying and then he like turns to roland and he goes lieutenant west roland and like further sort of underlining tom's personal connection with roland and how it's sort of muddying the case uh listen, looking back at this watching this a, sec- a second time it's like very uh, this is this is one this is another case of the show pulling that trick Similar to the man and his kids that we just found out exactly who they were this episode. She maybe is not talking about Tom in this recording. Cause like, I think she's talking about Kent. Yeah. This is when I start to suspect Attorney General Kent. I, maybe Alan, but I think it's Kent. Um, and that, that puts Kent on like high on the suspect to be involved in this whole thing board for me.
2: Yeah. No, totally. And I, yeah, because it's so deliberately vague. Um, you know, it, I just, I saw him on TV, you know, so, uh, I, I think, you know, there, there has been a, a not a, a frustrating and just a kind of fun amount of misdirection in this season, uh, yeah. in terms of pointing us towards the teenagers and the West Memphis three, and then pointing us maybe toward Amelia. And then now it's sort of like, Oh no, like, but those politician-y, lawyer-y guys that have been on the periphery since the first episode actually are sort of, you know, could be crucial to the story in a, in a sort of more central way than, than just being kind of side characters who help, um, our lead detectives kind of, you know, you have an excuse to, to, to give us the facts, you know? Um,
0: yeah. And one, and, and this is very Pizzolatto that it would be like someone high up in the ranks of somewhere, right. Being involved. Um, and actually, someone, a listener wrote in this theory very early in the season. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have the email in front of me, but like, shout out to them for, uh, you know, like, uh, someone, I think, uh, pointed to Kent early in the season. And, um, I'm not saying you acted alone. And actually, we'll talk about this a little bit more after you hear the chicken sounds on this episode. But it, you know, let's, it, thinking about Kent in this way, He's very motivated to not question the Woodard conviction back in 1980. And we thought that that was maybe like to preserve his own reputation or, you know, just, just to be like, it will make me look bad if we fuck this up in the eighties. But what if he's actually guilty in it and it serves him in another way to make sure that everyone thinks it's Woodard, right? Right. Um, and then there's also things like a set of fingerprints go missing in this episode when Wayne's looking for them. And like that seems like it needs to be someone inside the, the force. And then also the planted evidence, like maybe this person, Harris James, who goes missing is part of that, but maybe Kent is part of that too. You know, so like somebody, Harris James, you know, this, this investigator, Harris James, this officer and Kent, are somehow involved in all of this i feel very very good about that theory so yeah
2: totally go. and and playing kent is the actor brett collin who's great and he's been on you know a bunch of tv shows he's in um dark knight rises but he's also he did four episodes of lost so he's he's not a stranger to to a mystery and uh, i don't know i again i don't think he would be cast uh, unless he had maybe a higher purpose to serve, but, uh, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, we mentioned, we mentioned that in the beginning. I think when we were like picking out all the actors who we were like, oh, and this person, we were like, this guy we've seen in so many things. So, uh, there you go. So the Kint theory arises, um, I guess. And so, um. So instead it, of an Easter
2: egg, it's a Kinter egg? <laughs>
0: oh, oh, a little German for our friends. All right. So, um, so then we, we've got some other things that happen in the 1990s as, as Wayne and Roland are on the case. They go see Freddie Burns, who increasingly to me just feels like a red herring, right? Oh, totally. So, but I did talk to Michael Gray um, on the podcast last week in our interview about the collateral damage of this case. Cause there's like, Eliza keeps bringing it up in the 2015 storyline, the, the documentary director. She's like, is amazing how many people are dead around yeah. this case, yeah. you know, and, and we see a lot of that in this shootout at the Woodard, um, property, but, you know, Brett Woodard, because suspicion fell on him, is collateral damage. Freddie Burns, I mean, Wayne makes the case that Freddie Burns' life would be terrible anyway without their, that interrogation scene we saw last week, but like, you know, Freddie's carrying trauma from his, uh, interaction with this case. And once again, I, I just, I think that's a red herring, but it's, it's worth visiting, I think. So.
2: Yeah. And it's um, interesting seeing Wayne, because, you know, we, 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 we've seen him as an old kind of doddering man. We've seen him fall in love. Like we're sympathetic to him. We like him. I, I like him, you know, and then, but for it, for this, for him to kind of deny his, his impact on other people to accuse an entire generation of being, you know, cowards yeah yeah yeah. Um, i didn't want to say the word but (laughs) i know you know then it's kind of like oh he's being a shithead like he's he's you know he He has flaws too so i just appreciate that they um that pisolato and the other writers like like have um i guess would just be david mills right but uh are are conscious to to round him out you know and not make him this kind of like you know uh, idyllic hero
0: yeah um and we the and this scene is not just for that because we also get a tiny piece of evidence which is um Freddy saying they like yep. like that, that he saw Will Will was looking for a sister and he said they so just like not where she or like he, but like maybe that a couple people took Julie, right? Which puts puts Roland and Wayne back on the who were Julie and Will playing with in the woods beat, which is something honestly that really should have been deeply investigated in the eighties. Um, and that's why Wayne was looking for those fingerprints off the toys, but they've gone missing. Yeah, so, I guess duck, that duck, does
2: duck. point to a slight, I don't know, credibility gap in the show's kind of conception. Uh, is that like I don't really believe that in nineteen eighty. Wayne and maybe even Roland would have been like, okay. I mean, obviously, if they're taken off a case, they're taken off a case like and and everyone says case closed, like it's settled, like no more investigating. You kind of have to abide by that. But like it I don't know, this sort of new sense of discovery about like, you know, with the case reopened, it's like I feel like that those things would have been gnawing at them more than we've we've seen
0: well, I think that's why Wayne got put on, like, desk duty since the 1980s. I think that whole thing of, like, he was not – that's why I think we'll see more in the 1980s, because, like, he wasn't satisfied with leaving the case there. Right. And Roland played ball with it, and that's how Roland got ahead, and right. Wayne got shunted over desk duty. And if Kent is involved in this, like, the idea of, like – punishing and isolating Wayne from being able to continue to investigate the case serves him right in the eighties. So, um, I think you're both right, but like, maybe that's something we're going to see more of possibly. Um, and then we get the grouper street kids. Uh, Yay. we get, <laughs> we get, uh, this one street kid comes in, like, comes forward to say, like, he knows Julie. Julie used to run with him. Uh, or this, this woman. I'm, I, at the end of this episode, I'm convinced that that is Julie, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. she goes by Mary July. He's, she's a little nutty. She can't get straight on what year is. She says she's a secret princess from the pink rooms that she lost a brother looking for a brother. They got pulled apart when she was young. Uh, and then he writes down some names of like other people who might lead them to Julie. Um, the pink rooms and secret princess really relates to Julie's drawings that we've seen in the first few episodes. She's got all these drawings of like her as a princess. And there's also one which, like, there's one particular drawing that looks like a room that we're going to see at some point. It's got like drawers and like all, you know, it's like, it's a real place that Julie's been to that I think will be a hint. And I thought it was like Amelia's kitchen or something like that, but I think we kind of see Amelia's kitchen in this episode and it's not that. So, um, you know, this, this idea that maybe Julie was taken, told she was a secret princess, taken and held, um, and then escaped. Maybe, you know, this, maybe this is some sort of like room scenario, escaped, um, and uh, you know was like fuck you kent fuck you whoever was working with him like i'm i'm one of the group of street kids now or whatever like she becomes a runaway because she runs away from the people who took her and and this is why and and um this is why wayne is right to be worried about people knowing that julie might be back because it might be in their best interest it might be in kent's best interest uh to try to eliminate her if he is involved
2: um yeah and and this whole stuff with um pink rooms and being a princess it's like sort of vaguely evocative of the yellow king from the first season like i don't know Um, absolutely yeah he he likes a sort of trope like that
0: Absolutely. And the other thing is, we don't know, I mean, I think you brought this up last week, but we don't know who Julie's real father is. Like, that was another vague, uh, vague pronoun-ish thing used in 2015. What happened with Julie and her father, not Julie and Tom. Right. So, like, what happened with Julia and her father could be like, if Lucy had sex with, like, it could be Kent, it could be, um, someone else. You know what I mean? But like, that, that, you know, he might actually be her biological father. We don't know, but uh, that's just something to keep an eye on. So there we go. Uh. So, and then we get, uh, a lot of Amelia stuff in this episode, which, like, if we weren't already on the, like, kid scent right now, would be very, I think, evocative of Amelia being involved because, you know, Amelia and Wayne go have dinner with Roland and Lori, Lori, who we met last, uh, last week's episode. Oh, I should say really quickly, someone sent me the betting odds, people betting on who, uh, who, who was involved, who killed will or whatever and top of the charts like odds highest in favor of uh is uh tom and laurie <laughs> So laurie like, i don't know i think Lori is maybe one of those like people think that because you know as we mentioned last week like jodie Balfour, the actor who plays her is like not a nobody so like do you just have not she's not like a star but she's not a nobody so like is laurie in here um Sort of thing. I don't know. As people, people are high on Lori doing it. So there you go. I
2: don't know if I agree um, with that.
0: I don't agree with it at all, but you know, I just thought it was funny. Um, all right. So, uh, unless I misunderstood betting odds and actually like the reverse is true, you guys let me know if I don't understand what betting, how betting odds work.
2: Yeah. It's jo- when, when Joanna bets, she only does the penny slots. So she's,
0: it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the, the big takeaway from the scene is like, you know, a couple things that, you know, that they're not married. Maybe Roland has some, like, commitment issues, things that seem very consistent with sort of his alpha male-ish 90s character that he's playing here. Um Amelia wanting to bring her book over for them to look at. Amelia being very curious in the case. uh Wayne being really pissed. uh, First about, like, her telling the Cell-Saw cops that he was her ex-husband. And also just, like, her talking about it. Um, And Amelia being sort of pissed that... Roland is doing so well, and they aren't. That their house is sort of shitty compared to Roland's, which is, I think, where you got this idea that like maybe Amelia did this to like get ahead, like that she wants this kind of success in her life. as part of it. They get, they have a fight. It's a, it's another like, real I could really watch Carmen Ejogo and Mahershala Ali fight all the time. Like, I don't know if the dialogue always carries them, but like, um, you know. 10 years and you never got me right. Or like mm-hmm. he calls her a voyeur lifting yourself up on their bad luck, like all this sort of stuff. It's just, they, they really chew into this stuff. So yeah, and then there's it's, some good writing yeah.
2: in, in these scenes. Like um, I love um, uh, Wayne saying gifts shouldn't flatter the giver. Like that's a great sort of, I mean, also kind of like a, a good, you know, life lesson. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, But yeah, I mean, I don't know that the, the sort of Amelia stuff felt furthered here. Um, and, and, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just, I just think that, like, regardless of whether or not Amelia is actually sort of, you know, has a broader role to play in the coming episodes, like, I just think this is a really interestingly drawn relationship and, and, you know, like you said, really well acted.
0: Yeah. Um, and then it, it ends with, you know, Becca, little Becca is sick and it ends with them all sort of all piled in the bed. There's, you know, the one disadvantage to us going through this chronologically is that, um, you know, we don't get this – we can't maybe fully dig into this fun cutting back and forth they get. But there's just this really good and upsetting moment where Wayne is walking up the stairs behind Becca, little Becca, little Henry and Amelia to this like – to this cozy domestic, you know, destination where they're all going to pile in the get bed together and read the Jungle Book. And they vanish and we're in 2000 – they vanish, we're in 2015 in the same house and he's like, where's my family? And it's not yeah. just like <sighs> – it's not just like the dementia, uh which is hard to watch. it's just sort of like yeah, to go from being like surrounded by so much to having nothing is such a tragedy, um yeah. which we'll see echoed through roll in two thousand and fifteen, but it's just like it's a that's a that's one of the harshest flashes I think we've seen, and then it's just the the most um sort of chewiest journey we get through the timelines because we see 2015 Wayne watching 1990, sort of Wayne holding hands with Amelia reading the Jungle Book. And then we see 1990s Wayne look in the window and see 1980s Wayne spattered in blood and in the hospital. So it's just sort of like this little thread through in this particular scene here.
2: Yeah, I think that that whole like, where's my family thing is so devastating. Like, like, you know, kind of a tangent, but my parents are, are, probably going to leave my childhood home and like move somewhere else soon. And uh, part of me is sad about it, but it's also like, yeah, like go do something new. That's not like haunted by like the past and like, you know, like the, the, the ghostly laughter of children or whatever. Like it, you know, I, I just, I just felt so badly. I felt so bad for Wayne in that scene. It was just, you know, um, it's just, it's heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. It's really, it's really sad. All right. So, um, we, I think that's all the 90s stuff we're going to cover unless there's anything else.
2: No, I think Um, that's, that's, that's about it. Yeah. Uh,
0: then we get to 2015. Um, and this is where Eliza basically says, like, one of the officers who processed the Woodard case, the Woodard scene, Harris James, went missing during the 1990 investigation. Oh, Wayne pretends and he doesn't know who Harris James is, but like, obviously he does like, and she says, use, you know, you talk to him. So we'll see in theory, Wayne, and possibly Roland talking to Harris and possibly killing him and putting him in the woods. I don't know. Like, Wayne muttered in a previous episode, like that thing we left in the woods. Mm-hmm. So like, maybe it's Harris James's body. Yeah. Uh, And they killed him possibly. Um, I, I want to return to that uh, ghost scene we saw in last week's episode where you and I sort of debated whether or not um, all those ghosts that were crowding around 2015 Wayne and his study were people he had killed. I watched it again right before we recorded. and I'm going to go back to saying I think it is because what I missed the first time is there's a very brief shot of Woodard with a bullet wound in his forehead. So, like, like, Woodard is one of the people that Wayne killed. Um, you're right that not every, uh, like, soldier in that scene looks like, has, like, a, a straw hat on and stuff like that. But, like, I think it's possible that these are all people that Wayne killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, and, and there's a guy, I mean, you don't get to see his face and his hair is kind of slicked down. So you can't tell, like, if it's gingery or not. But, like, um, I would, bet money that that's Harris James in that ghost scene with a bullet wound in his chest yeah. um, who was killed in 1990 sometime so there we go um, and we see we get a scene of Wayne reading um, Amelia's
2: book yeah, he's and like this- baby I should have read this so long ago <laughs> yeah.
0: You're like, you idiot. <laughs> um, once again, that's like a convenient thing to us that Wayne is only not just now reading the book. But, um, this reminds me of a discussion we had when we were doing sharp objects where at the very end you read, you get to hear the article that the lead, the lead character is a journalist, a great writer and, uh, or a whatever writer in that show has written. Mm-hmm. And like a character reads it out and then is like, Oh, that's genius. And we're like, Oh, it's, it's so hard to like, Read out prose that a character yeah. has written and for us to like believe his genius. And so like he's reading out Amelia's book and I'm like, this is very overwritten. That does not like,
2: sound like the seminal crime no- uh, book no. of this era, yeah.
0: It's very purpley, so I'm I'm not sure. Um but yeah, immutable something, soul grief indistinguishable from madness. Alright, Amelia. Anyway, so Amelia in the section he's reading, she describes her encounter with Lucy that we saw uh in a previous episode. And he makes uh Wayne in 2015 makes a connection between Lucy telling Amelia children should laugh, you know, and the ransom note saying children should laugh. And so Wayne's conclusion seems to be that like Lucy did it. Um or Lucy wrote the ransom note or something like that. So um that's a that's a that's a question mark that we can pursue a little bit later on if we want to. Uh but first we well, I feel like they, they yeah. kind
2: of make that clear cut that she did the ransom note just to sort of because it was a phrase she used. Like I feel like that that felt sort of settled to
1: me.
0: Uh I disagree, but we're gonna talk about it after the chicken okay. choices. So um then we get uh old man dwarf. <laughs> um i actually because i hadn't been watching the previews and um so i didn't know whether or not we were going to get old mandorf um but because like i wasn't no i didn't know if roland was alive or whatever um but here he is feeding his dogs in the middle of nowhere putting booze in his coffee teaching a small dog how to get ladies i think steven dorf is fantastic i think his makeup looks great what do you think of of this intro
2: Oh yeah, he looks great. I mean, he's not as effective as Mahershala Ali's old man makeup, nor Mahershala Ali's um, really expert body language. Um, I think I think I agree. That, that his physical bearing, it, it, we, even in, it, when he pu- when he pulls up to, to, to um, Roland's house, we, we see Wayne kind of like pulling himself out of the car, and it's like a lot. It's a really good bit of physical acting for a shot that's from very far away. You know. So so so, Dorf can't compete with that. But he, I still I still like it, and I love what he does in this. I mean, it's not one sole scene because it's chopped up. But like, I love what he does in this sequence. I think it's so well acted and and really, really nicely deepens the, the kind of emotional register of the of the season.
0: Yeah, I um I compl- I agree with you that it's 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 not as um like I I just believe that Marshall Ellie is however old he's meant to be in 2015. And with Stephen Dorf, I'm like, that's a very convincing performance, but I don't get lost in it. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they There, he, they also put like, he has the disadvantage of like, they put like a little pillow on him, under his undershirt, you yeah, know what I mean? Uh-huh. And I'm just like, it doesn't look as good as like whatever like subtler thickening they've done to Marshall Ali's body and stuff like that. Uh, he did do one pull up. There's one point where he gets up out of his chair to like throw a ball for his dogs while he's talking to Wayne. And he did do that sort of like, uh, my joints sort of thing. Um, in a way that I was like, okay. Um, but yeah. So we get, we get, we learn some things. We learn that they haven't talked since 90 or 91. It's been 24, 25 years. Uh, we learned Roland never got married, never had kids, lives, like was once a very sociable person and lives alone. Um, and so like whatever happened in 1990 genuinely seems to have like ruined Roland's life. Um, like that his life was on an upswing from 80 to 90 and then. Like, whatever happened in 90 led him here to be drinking a lot in the middle of nowhere, to be frightened to this case. And something happened between the two of them, not just that, like, possibly they killed a guy. Uh, but, you know, like, uh, uh, Roland says, asks Henry, does he remember why I'm mad at him? And Henry's like, it's not worth it. And, and then. Roland says this amazing thing where he's like, maybe I forgot myself. You know, it's just like so much time has passed. Oh, and my favorite – to go back to your thing about this being about friendship, my favorite shot of the episode is like Wayne gets out. He's talking to Henry. He's like, I'm not sure I want to go in. I don't know. Roland comes out, makes some joke where he like pretends that Henry is Wayne. And then Mahershla gets this just like – delighted look on his face like hey it's my old friend and yeah. he's making jokes it's like heartbreaking and sweet and just such a just a calibrated uh performance of like some someone older laughing at a joke that's like kind of corny and basic but like it's just it, delighted by it you know
2: yeah so yeah no it's 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 just a great i i really i really like it and I like this kind of like I don't know, like, this would be a movie with Michael Douglas and Morgan Freeman, like, two old guys getting back on the, you know, back on the hunt, like, but it's it's done in such a non-cliche way somehow. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's great. I love, I love Stephen Dorff and he has the tear rolling down his eye. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: um, yeah. I, I actually wrote down a Morgan Freeman line from Shawshank Redemption when, like, uh, Red says in Shawshank Redemption, like, maybe I just missed my friend. Talking about Andy. I just oh, which gets me every time. Uh that's that's what I wrote down in my notes when he was like when Wayne gives that look where he's just like so excited. Um we get a dump of more information like um like Roland being worried that they, that, uh, like Eliza in the, you know, he does not want to be part of the docuseries. He's afraid everything's going to get pinned on them somehow, like killing a man. Uh, the director showed a new picture. They talk about Dan O'Brien's body found in the quarry and Harris James, this guy, this investigator who went missing. Um, and then they connect that to Lucy somehow. Like, uh, say, Roland says,
2: we know, we know yeah. she had, she- she had a connection to him or something like that. Right. Or we, we know he had a connection to her.
0: We already know she had some connection to that guy whose name you just said, right, <laughs> which right. is a classic true detective season three. We're going to be vague about which guy. So it's either Dan, cousin Dan or Harris James. And my money would be on Harris. Uh, Dan feels like another red herring to me, to be honest with you. Um And so we already knew she had connection to that guy whose name you just said. Um, and then Wayne says he came to see me, that Hoyt came to see him the day after it happened. So maybe the day after they killed someone, Hoyt, who remember is the guy who owns Hoyt Foods, where the chicken line is, um, came to see them and, and Roland didn't know that, um, Hoyt knew about what they had done. So maybe that they had killed someone. And basically, like, Wayne is like, let's do this. And Roland's like, no. <laughs> Wayne says yes, and literally they go yes and no, yes and no, yes and no. Um, like stir some shit up with me. Uh, come do this. Roland has a great line about old man fantasy camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this concept of killing time, which, which is a phrase we use a lot just casually, but just thinking about that notion of like, i become a master of killing time. Like that's yeah. just that has a heavier sort of significance in the context of this of this thing and basically Roland convinces Wayne, as you say to do the Michael Douglas Morgan Freeman movie with him the the old dogs the bucket list like we're back on the case here we go so uh this this introduces I would guess like the back wave of the season we talked about sort of pivoting from the eighty investigation to the ninety investigation now here's the two thousand fifteen investigation right yeah so there we
2: go. And I think I like I like I like I think that the 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 season is sort of elegantly shaped. It's kind of like a wave, you know, and yeah. and and we're now moving into the kind of the, the crest, which is you know in the in the third part of the triptych. Um, and you know, initially that kind of the 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 the, the, the initially the sort of three part structure kind of bothered me, and I worried that people would be confused. And I have heard from some kind of more casual watchers that they are a little bit confused, but like. I think standing back a little a little bit in, in aggregate I think it it so far is working really well.
0: Yeah, I think I think um I it's like Westworld season 2 <laughs> where like if you're doing a podcast about it and rewatching episodes like it it's it's can be really interesting to like track these timelines but I can't imagine watching this casually. Like yeah. especially if you can't nail the difference between Wayne's nineties haircut and his eighties haircut. It's like, it's a challenge. So there you go. Um, all right. So I want to get into connecting some of the threads of various theories that we've, that we've popped up, um, so far this season, but we're going to do that after our, our like, chicken sound is there anything else the chicken sound sounds and then you you know what you signed up for after it uh is there anything richard that you want to talk about before we we get there
2: do you think that the thing the the the, the rift between wayne and roland is because they kissed and it was awkward after
0: yeah and and like and then amelia was like do it more i'm gonna get the video (laughs) camera i need a
2: sequel yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah, oh. um, this is the, but like, that's, like, to, to your point, I, I like this episode. I love the introduction of 2015 Roland and I love the crystallation of what this season seems to really be about, which is a friendship, which is something that season one, you know, with Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, like that relationship and how it dissolved over the years, um, was such a key part of season one. And so, and then they kind of lost that. It's, they definitely lost that in season two. So to bring that back, uh, cause, cause we talked about collateral damage earlier, collateral damage to Freddie, to Brett, but collateral damage to Roland, to Wayne, and to their friendship, which, you know, uh, you know, above the, above the Wayne and Amelia relationship is, is the one I'm most invested in, uh, in this season. So there you go. It's chicken time. <laughs> Everything you touch turns to shit. Uh, all right. So here's here's my unified theory. Are okay. you ready? Yeah,
2: I'm ready. Lay it on me. Uh,
0: so last week in this section we talked about the Hoyt theory. The Hoyt theory. If you missed it last week, uh, is is based off a shot that was in a uh so a listener sent the source to me it's a hbo did a filming in arkansas little video where it's just like the actors talking about how fun it was to film in arkansas and that shot there's a shot in that video that hbo released of the cave devil's den and it pan the camera pans to a woman in white who looks to be identical to a portrait of a woman in white that was in the Hoyt foods office that we visited a couple episodes ago. Um, and so the theory is that Hoyt, Hoyt's daughter, whose own daughter went missing. And that's why they have a charitable children's foundation that Hoyt's daughter wanted to take, uh, Julie Purcell to raise as her own, to replace her own missing daughter. Um, and this mention of Hoyt in this episode, Hoyt came to see us, seems to really further cement that the fact that the Hoyts might be involved somehow. So here's a theory. Either, uh, Ho- like either Hoyt himself or Kent act- acting for Hoyt or Kent acting with um, like Hoyt's daughter approached Lucy and asked to buy her children. And Lucy said yes. Cause if you rewatch, if you, if you believe that theory, uh, either Kint actually is Julie's father. Cause like, I could definitely see Julie, like, you know, having sex with, I mean, Lucy, uh, play by Mamie Gummer having sex with Kint. That could have happened, maybe Kent could be Julie's actual father or not. But at any rate, the idea that Lucy might sell her kids does sort of seem like something she might do. And maybe Dan was involved in that somehow. Maybe Dan like helps broker the deal or something like that. Because if you rewatch that scene between Mimi Gummer and Carmen Ajogo in the episode where she says children should laugh, she talks about like what I'd done and killing herself. So like my idea is that like maybe Lucy was convinced because she doesn't care about her children and she wants money, right? Mm-hmm. To sell her children. Uh, or and, Uh And... But never expected that one of them would die. Like maybe I'm, maybe convince herself I'm giving them a better life. They'll be better off. This is an unhappy home. They'll be better off. They'll be with rich people. Uh, but then like Will shows up dead and that makes Lucy feel so guilty for what she did. So like Lucy writing, either writing the note or they told her children should laugh was like their, uh, way of convincing her to get rid of Will and Lucy. Uh, to Willa and Julie. Sorry, I keep confusing Julie and Lucy. Anyway, so that's that's a theory. Ken being involved seems very certain to me. Hoyt being involved and Hoyt's daughter being involved feels very certain to me. But this idea that maybe like Julie was taken to replace the Hoyt granddaughter that went missing and was kept in a room. Maybe Hoyt, who owns the company, doesn't know about it. Maybe this is just the particular mania of his daughter and he doesn't know that his daughter has done this and put, put this little girl in a room. Uh, or maybe he does, but, and, and the idea that maybe, um, Whitehead, who was the, um, the, like, African-American suspect who was pushing back on being questioned was maybe part of it too, because we have all these reports of a nice brown car, a white woman, and a black man with a dead eye all being involved. So the, the suspects in this conspiracy, which goes all the way up to the top of industry and the top of, you know, the attorney general's os- um, office is Kent Hoyt, Hoyt's daughter, uh, this, you know, question, question mark black man. Um, yeah,
2: that feels very yeah. Pizzolato, doesn't it?
0: It really does.
2: Like that's pretty credible. Although I guess, you know, um and, and I, I, I I I think that's a pretty persuasive theory. Um I do kind of think though that um it would it would sort of reduce Amelia just to like the kind of Hectoring wife character that I was hoping she wasn't. Even though she's, like, involved and she has her book and everything, you know, I don't really know what that necessarily means in terms of, like, its intrinsic um, weight to the story. Um, and that's maybe why I was kind of telegraphing that, oh, I think Amelia did it, because I was like, she has to be there for for a bigger reason, you know. Um, but maybe she's not.
0: Um, yeah, I... My friend uh, Lindsay Romain who uh, is really into like true crime and true detective who writes over for Nerdist she has really hated the Amelia theory cuz she feels like um she feels the opposite she feels like it does reduce Amelia to another kind of mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a female stereotype but 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 the the comparison I've heard a lot is to um Michelle McNamara who is Patton Oswalt's late wife who uh Basically, the cops had given up on finding the Golden State Killer and she's a true crime writer and she, she like basically figured out who it was by like refusing to let the case go. Something that Lindsay said to me was, um, this idea of like Amelia and we see in this episode Lori at the dinner table. Maybe they're like intuitive. Uh, this is another stereotype anyway, but like intuitive emotional female sort of inquisitiveness uh is pushed aside in the face of like these men are in charge of the case and sort of like maybe they would have been more on the right track if they had been allowed to, like maybe Amelia would have figured out who it was. Maybe she was more on the right track than anyone else to go talk to Lucy, like all this sort of stuff. And so um I think it will depend on how the rest of the Amelia story like unwinds, I can see it going both ways. I can see it landing exactly as you say, Richard, be- especially because true detective hasn't always been great uh with his treatment of women. And I could see it maybe going the way that my friend Lindsay hopes it will go, which is that like, if only Wayne had listened to Amelia, maybe he would have figured this out decades ago sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I don't know. But, um, we shall see. The last piece of evidence I would give uh, for this whole Lucy Kent Hoyt theory is that, uh, Mamie Gummer both told me that, um, she only got the scripts that pertain to her scenes and also told me she knows how this whole story goes. So it, you know, whereas Michael Gray has told me in the interview last week, he only got the scripts that pertain to a scene and he doesn't know anything now. Like he's he's like I have no idea who did it. Whereas Mamie's like, oh, I know what happened. And so, uh, you know, the this idea that maybe we'll get 1980s Lucy and we'll see her selling your kid or something like that, or, or she needed to have been told that in order to deliver that scene where she says like the things I'd done, like there are bad moms and then there, you know, people make mistakes, but not like this, not like what I did is what she says. So, I mean, that's, that's my, that's my current theory. We'll see if, if another behind the scenes photos just like obliterates it before the next uh, episode, but uh, that's where we are. Is there anything else uh, you want to mention before we sign off? No, I
2: think that that's a good theory. I think you've, you've, uh, you've convinced me
0: all right well r.i.p. the grouper street kids no that's, that's for sure um and you know just just to say where can people find your work uh, until we meet again
2: on VF.com, we just had a big rollout of the um, a thing we did for the kind of in conjunction with the twenty fifth yeah. Hollywood issue, which is the um, most influential uh, movie scenes from from nineteen ninety five on. Nineteen ninety five was the first uh, year of the Hollywood issue, and um, I contributed. You contributed. Every, like we, we got we got quotes from a lot of people who were in those scenes or directed those scenes. So that's the plug. I know it's not true detective related, but it's actually not even tv related. But um, we're proud of it. It looks great. Uh, and it's amazing. Uh, you, yeah. You can find me there. You can find me on Twitter, Ryla's, and you can find me playing with Stephen Dorf's dogs.
0: Yeah. Richard and our other film critic, Kim Collins did an incredible job with that piece. So if you haven't checked out yet, please do. It's, it looks incredible. Um, you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can follow me on Joe wrote this, or you will find me in bed with the entire Hayes family reading the jungle book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would read, I would read a book in bed with uh, Ray Fisher.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Um, this episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez, and we will see you all next week.
1: Have you sat back over the last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case? Can I tell you a secret? That you been killing
0: What happened? It was kids.
1: My kids. My, my whole brain's bunch of pieces. That's when it all started. Hey.